Black Luck Audio Tales is brought to you by Bunny Slippers and FoundItemClothing.com. Check them out at FoundItemClothing and BunnySlippers.com. BunnySlippers.com has that really cool dino sound slipper that I've been talking about. Check those out. They've also got zombie slippers, halfling slippers. Uh, Seriously, they look like feet with fuzzy stuff on them. It's it's funny. They've got uh, slippers you can plug into USBs. And they've got slippers you can get hot by microwaving them. So that's nice now that winter's coming up. And if, you know, you want to wear something over the top of your, you know, thermal uh, long sleeve, why not go to founditemclothing.com? They've got all kinds of cool stuff. And my personal favorites are the shirts Booger Warren, Revenge of the Nerds. They're three-quarter length, uh, like, softball jerseys. Anyway, they're cool. They're cool. Founditemclothing.com, bunnyslippers.com, Black Clock Audio Tales is on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter for some reason. So check us out there. And also, why not donate some money by going to pgttcm.com and looking for the info where you can help donate to the show, become a member of our beer cult, t-shirt cult, or get the same cool treatment that bunny slippers and found out of clothing get by being an advertiser for the show. Thank you so much. And here's an interview with Andrew Grace. All right. We are back again with Black Clock Audio Tales. And once again, we have Dr. Andrew Grace with us. I'm not going to make any jokes about what PhD stands for because I couldn't come up with any this time. Hello. Hey. I'm Dr. Andrew Grace. Uh, My PhD is still in English from the University of Oregon, if you've never heard this podcast before. (laughs) And I am here to talk about the middle section of Jane Eyre, which is also known as the only part anyone ever thinks about unless they wrote a dissertation that included Jane Eyre. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Because the middle section takes place at Thornfield Hall, which has a much better name than either Gateshead or Marsh End. Mm Mm-hmm. And it features a lot of witty repertoire between Jane and Mr. Rochester, which is the most exciting part of the novel. Also, there's a stabbing, (laughs) uh, and there is a really poorly conceived bit where Mr. Rochester pretends not only to be a woman, but also to be a gypsy in a way that is offensive to both the Roma and women. So, yeah. How would you like me to get started here? Well, uh, the beginning's a good place to start. I mean, uh, chapter 12, we have... Or, uh, what, uh, is it chapter 12? Chapter 12. Yeah. So, chapter 12 begins with Jane settling into her role as a governess for Adele. Mm -hmm. She knows that Adele is the ward of one Mr. Rochester, but she has not met Mr. Rochester yet. Mm -hmm. She is primarily communicating with Mrs. Fairfax, the housekeeper of Thornfield Hall. And Jane finds her position fine. Adele, as a pupil, is fine. We learn early on that she's a little too French to ever be great. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she's cooperative, and she likes Jane. And in Chapter 12, we get some 
reflection from Jane um, about her status. And very early in the chapter, uh, there's this passage I like where she says, Nobody knows how many rebellions besides political rebellions ferment in the masses of life which people earth. Women are supposed to be very calm generally, but women feel just as men feel. They need exercise for their faculties and a field for their efforts as much as their brothers do. They suffer from too rigid a restraint to absolute stagnation, precisely as men would suffer. And it is a narrow-minded in their more privileged fellow creatures to say that they ought to confine themselves to making puddings and knitting stockings, to playing on the piano and embroidering bags. It is thoughtless to condemn them or laugh at them if they seek to do more or learn more than custom has pronounced necessary for their sex. So first of all, I want to draw attention to that passage because mm -hmm. that's two sentences, right? And it's about half a page long. Mm -hmm. So 19th century prose, everybody. But also, it touches on something I mentioned when we were talking about the first section of the novel, which is that Jane, as a character, begins by being defined as an orphan, as someone who is suffering from deprivation. And so early in the novel, we're worried about her ability to sort of survive. But as we get farther along in the novel, the question isn't whether or not she can survive. The question isn't whether or not she can make a decent living and have a place to live with mm -hmm. food and comfort. But rather, it becomes much more abstract. Can she find a situation in which she is satisfied? And part of that satisfaction, as she poses in the early part of the novel, is that she wants to love and to be loved. But we also get in this passage a desire to use all of her faculties, that she wants to be imaginative, that she wants to be inspired, that she wants to have her intellect engaged in her task. And so although being a governess and teaching this young woman material is like, that's fine. The fact that Adele isn't very bright mm -hmm. means that she doesn't really engage all of her faculties in teaching Adele. Hmm. And so this is going to be important when she finally meets Mr. Rochester. And in terms of understanding how Jane feels about Mr. Rochester... Um, because this passage really comes right before she meets Mr. Rochester. So the next page, we get a quick time jump. We find out that October, November, and December pass away. It's cool. She's just getting used to life at Thornfield Hall. She's doing her job, but she's getting restless. And so in January, she goes to like deliver the mail she's just kind of like running an errand and she encounters a man who has fallen off of his horse and he's hurt his ankle and they have a little bit of a back and forth as she helps get the horse back to the man and helps the man get back on the horse 
she finishes her errand, like bringing the mail to town. She comes back to Thornfield Hall, and Mrs. Fairfax is all in a tizzy because lo and behold, Mr. Rochester has returned. And that's really the sum of chapter 12, is the sort of occasion under which Jane meets Mr. Rochester, but doesn't know she has met Mr. Rochester. And that leads us into chapter 13, where they have their first discussion that he calls for her in into the den where he's sitting in front of the fire. He's, he's got his ankle up because it's been hurt. And he really asks for her to account for herself. And Mrs. Fairfax keeps trying to talk about how great Jane has been for the last few months. Like, Jane's been such a, a great worker, such a great employee, so great with Adele. And Mr. Rochester cuts her off and says that Jane has to account for herself and has to begin with the fact that she felled his horse. Um, and this plays on the idea that throughout this conversation, Mr. Rochester is going to accuse her of being one of the fairy folk. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, it's a sort of ridiculous accusation, but it's, it's such a lovely bit of conversation because Mr. Rochester is just impressed with the fact that Jane keeps up with it. Gotcha. That he says, like, well, let her account for herself, and she began with felling my horse, and she's one of the fairy folk, and Jane immediately responds... None of the fairy folk have been seen in these parts for decades. Like, she's not confused by it, she's not stunned by it or put off by it, and it becomes very playful. Mm -hmm. That he recognizes in her an imagination and a willingness to, like, think outside of conventional 19th century conversations, and she sees in him someone who is willing to actually like have these conversations with her instead mm -hmm. of just putting her like into a box but this also becomes the tension between them for the next few chapters that she works for him she is his paid subordinate which is a phrase that gets used a couple of times mm -hmm. and he can order her into the room and say like jane come into the room and talk to me um, but she doesn't have that kind of reciprocal ability. She can't be like, Mr. Rochester, come here and talk to me, because uh, he owns the house. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he asks her about her education, and he asks her uh, about her heritage, and he finds out that she is a an orphan. Um but the point where their conversation becomes more interesting is when he studies her drawings in a later chapter and discovers that, and this is in chapter 13, um, really discovers that she drew these pictures from her imagination. Hmm. And he's intrigued by the fact that she imagined these you know, fantastical scenes that she wasn't drawing on any kind of, like, mythical or portraiture tradition. 
um, and thus begins a twisted and dangerous romance, uh, leading us into chapter 14, where not much that is super interesting happens. <laughs> oh. Excuse me. Oh. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> doing all right there? Yeah, yeah, doing. Might, might need to do a little editing. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or I'll blow everyone's fucking ears out. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing happens in that chapter then, huh? So in chapter 14, the most interesting thing that happens is we get a bit of conversation between Jane and Rochester about the concept of repentance. Mm -hmm. So we don't know too much about Mr. Rochester at this point, but we discover that he has some lingering guilt about the life he's led. We know he's a lot older than Jane. He's about 25 years older than Jane. Um, we know that he did not originally anticipate being the heir to Thornfield Hall. He had an older brother. So he lived a life where he anticipated uh, a different set of material circumstances. Yeah. And now much wealthier than he planned to be. Um, and we find out that he has spent some of his life pursuing pleasure. Uh, and so he's thinking now about repentance and redemption. And he and Jane have some conversations about that. And we get the impression, and it'll develop over the course of their relationship, that Mr. Rochester is sort of looking for someone to reform him or to help him repent. Um, and in chapter 15, he, he states that a little more clearly. And he says, the more you and I converse, the better. For while I cannot blight you, you may refresh me. Um, and this is kind of a dangerous idea, but one that exists throughout 19th century literature, the mm -hmm. idea that a woman might be able to in some way reform or better a man. Yeah. Um, this is really at the heart of Nathaniel Hawthorne's story, Young Goodman Brown. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it's not unique to Jane Eyre. And it's also connected to the gothic tradition hmm. because we've gotten like 10 minutes into this and i haven't said the words gothic tradition yet <laughs> and yet that's clearly what's at issue here for me sure um so within the gothic tradition there's oftentimes a dynamic in which there are two men who offer something different to a young woman or the alternate way to put that is threaten a young woman with two different things. Uh, and one of them is often a passionate man driven by lust who wants to force a woman into marriage on the belief that she is going to be the cure for his desires. And the flip side is a more 
cold, emotionless, usually religious man who wants to force a young woman to suppress all of her own desires and usually go into some kind of religious servitude or nunnery. And within Jane Eyre, it's not as explicit. Uh, the novel is much more nuanced. The characters are much more human than we typically get in like an 18th century Gothic novel. But we do have this dynamic whereby Mr. Rochester is a kind of passionate man. Um, and his passions are complicated and they're human compared to 18th century uh, Gothic villains. But it's still there that he is expressing this desire in Jane that she is very confused by. Jane does not understand sex. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know what that's about. Um, and that becomes very clear in the middle third of the novel. Um, and in particular, in the next bit that I'll talk about, uh, but before I get to the bit where someone gets stabbed, or before I get to the bit where there's a fire, um, I just wanted to say that there is a, a character who doesn't get as much attention as Mr. Rochester, and mm -hmm. that is Sinjin Rivers. Um, and Sinjin Rivers doesn't get as much attention because he's not a lot of fun. Yeah. Like, Mr. Rochester is a lot of fun. All of Mr. Rochester's dialogue is great. Uh, Sinjin Rivers is like a fundamental bore, but he is the foil to Mr. Rochester. He is that cold, emotionless, religious character who wants to force Jane into servitude. And that's going to be in the latter third of the novel. But within this gothic tradition that Jane rests in, we're in the part where... Um, she's being pursued by this more passionate figure. And so one of the things that he expresses is this desire to have her refresh him with her youth and her innocence. Uh, so innocent that she doesn't really understand what's going on. Um, and we get that to come out then when Mr. Rochester's room is set on fire. Um, that at the end of chapter 15, after Mr. Rochester has sort of confused her with all of these things he's saying, uh, Jane wakes to find smoke rolling out of the door to Mr. Rochester's room. She comes into the room. His bed is on fire. She throws some water on it and rescues him from excruciating death. And he is... He runs off for a minute uh, and we get some more information that maybe Grace Poole was involved in this. And we return momentarily to Jane Eyre, worst detective ever. <laughs> because she's like, oh, Grace Poole had something to do with this? Did she set your bed on fire? Okay. That seems reasonable. Um, not, not asking too many questions about what's going on on the third floor. But 
the chapter really ends with Jane and Rochester in Rochester's room, right next to his bed. And Jane's like, I think I hear Mrs. Fairfax. I gotta go. Um, and there's a lot of analysis of the way this chapter builds up to the moment where Jane throws water on the fire on Rochester's bed, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. This guy's, this guy's got some desire. This guy's coming on to her and she like literally douses it with water. Um, but it also builds into this additional mystery of like, where do the mysterious noises in Thornfield Hall come from? Like who started this fire? Uh, and that's going to lead us eventually to the existence of Bertha Rochester, Mr. Rochester's secret wife, whom he has locked in his attic in a way that means no one should ever marry Mr. Rochester. Yeah. Though that is not how the novel ends. Yeah. Spoiler uh, alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yes. Spoiler alert, someone marries Mr. Rochester. <sighs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I mean, for a lot of people, this is when it starts to get interesting, when it's like, ooh, I'm a better detective than Jane. <laughs> <laughs> being, being a better detective than Jane is a little like being a better shot than like a cobra foot soldier or i was something. gonna say being a better detective than jane is like guessing the ending to an episode of ducktales or yeah being a better shot than cobra a, a cobra trooper or a stormtrooper yeah stormtrooper, <laughs> right only a stormtrooper would be so precise man that's all obi-wan kenobi does is lie <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of yeah. <laughs> we don't realize that until much later though <laughs> yeah so the next chapter chapter 16 um is also the first chapter of volume two uh -huh. right so this is a moment to sort of pause and reflect on where we are like jane has grown up gotten a job met this intriguing older man He's not handsome, but he endears himself to her with his witty repertoire. And also, someone is trying to kill him. So it's like the episode in season two of any two or three season anime where they do the whole, like, let's show everything that's happened to catch everybody yeah. up. That's I pretty mean, much chapter 16. But I guess then they do recaps on other shows, too, but I always think of, like anime it's being like the ones that really always do it for like second season like let's do this let's show you oh yeah i mean because they always set up such like a good frame for the clip show and yeah. then such explicit clip show yeah <laughs> much better um, than oh we're all locked in a freezer let's remember the good times before we die <laughs> happy days <laughs> let's remember the good times uh, but in chapter 16, we also get a new plot complication, uh -oh. right? Yeah. Because otherwise, Jane might actually have to try and think about what's going on at Thornfield Hall. And, and we need to drag this out a bit. So we, we find out that Mrs. Ingram is coming with her three daughters, and they are all beautiful and lovely, especially Blanche Ingram, uh, the oldest daughter. Mm-hmm. 
And this touches on, we've gotten throughout the novel, Jane's insecurities about her own appearance. Mm -hmm. She thinks she's a very plain person. Everyone tells her she's a very plain person. She's a very homely woman. Um, the One of the famous articles about the novel Jane Eyre is Plain Jane's Progress, which plays on the idea that Jane is ordinary looking and related to the story of Pilgrim's Progress that I mentioned last time. Mm -hmm. um, so Jane's really insecure about these attractive, well-born, uh, wealthier women who are coming to visit um, and so that sets up, like, our next bit of plot. Our next bit of plot is going to be, like, what happens with this visit? It seems like Mr. Rochester may be looking for a wife among the hot young heiresses of the area. Um, and that's really what we get into then in Chapter 17, the second chapter of Volume 2 when the Ingrams come to visit um, and the town is really, not the town, sorry, the estate is really getting ready for their visit. Um, and what we get as a reminder in these chapters is we get the reminder that Jane is not Mr. Rochester's equal. Mm -hmm. She's not as equal within the social structure of 19th century England. Um, she's one of the servants who is helping to clean the house, not the host who is getting ready to have visitors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, within all of the different things going on within the novel of Jane Eyre, all of the things going on with morality, all of the things going on with religion, all of the things going on with gender, all of the things going on with weird gothic supernatural concerns. It can be easy to lose track of how important class and status are, mm -hmm. um, especially with the way Jane and Rochester converse and that they don't tend to converse with a lot of respect to class and status. Um, but we do get this bit of plot that really reminds us of that, really reminds us of how important class and status are. Hmm. Um, especially when Mr. Rochester really orders Jane to come and hang out at the terrible party to the point where she is going to cry from how badly she's being treated by his guests. And then he sort of finally, mercifully, like, lets her leave, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's a, it's a solid reminder that, like, she is his employee, and, you know, being his employee in the 19th century isn't just, like, there's no HR, right? She can't, like, file a complaint about harassment or something. You know, she's his employee, but also she is beneath him on a social hierarchy. Hmm. Uh, and that leads us into um, the, the next really weird bit where Mr. Rochester dresses up as a gypsy 
and pretends to be a woman who's gonna give fortunes. And it's not a good part of the novel. No. It it was not a good idea to write it. Um and you know it demonstrates all of the problems with 19th century literature mm -hmm. um, and and for even someone who who has some progressive ideas like Charlotte Bronte someone who's thinking about the ways in which class and gender limit people and who's pushing back against that a little uh, we do get this scene where um, we're just going to appropriate culture uh, and we're not going to acknowledge where any of that culture comes from mm -hmm. um, where we're going to present ideas about gender and not question where those ideas come from um, it's a it's a difficult scene when you are a scholar of Jane Eyre and of 19th century literature to to try and remain positive yeah um, but the the purpose of the scene the idea behind it we we find a kind of plot function in which Mr. Rochester uses this opportunity to kind of test his would-be wives. Mm -hmm. So he implies to Blanche that he is poorer than he is. And she, uh, she sort of runs out in a huff like she's not going to marry this guy if he's not as rich as she thinks she is, mm -hmm. he is. Uh, and with Jane, the bigger, more important thing is that Jane kind of realizes it is Mr. Rochester. She sort of sees through the disguise eventually. Um, <laughs> and that's that's sort of the sign that, like, maybe <clears throat> they be together. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, Jane is so dumb. And... <laughs> Well, I mean, she's not she's not dumb. She's a bad detective. Okay, but she's she she unlike Blanche does you know ascertain Mr. Rochester's identity, yeah. right? And then everything gets interrupted when uh, a new guest shows up. Another guest shows up, um, and and this guest is Mr. Mason, mm. and. You know, Rochester has this visceral reaction to Mr. Mason showing up, and it's it's a moment of intimacy between him and Jane that he sort of tells Jane, like, I've had a blow, you know, like, this guy has shown up, mm -hmm. and, and Jane supports him. Um, and almost immediately after showing up, I mean, we wait just, like, a little while... But then Mr. Rochester has to call for Jane's help because Mr. Mason has been stabbed. Right? Yeah. He is he is real bloody. And and Mr. Rochester's like, you're not squeamish, right, Jane? Put your hands here. Prevent him from bleeding out while I get a doctor. And literally tells Mr. Mason, he's like, 
don't say anything to her or I'll kill you. <laughs> uh, so we need to, we need to like, you know, get some perspective here. A guy has been stabbed. Mr. Rochester has threatened that man to remain silent on fear of his life. Eventually the man gets stitched up by the doctor, gets put in the carriage, gets taken away. And what are Jane's follow-up questions? Nah, that's okay. I don't need to know. <laughs> right? Because Jane is an amazing detective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and again, spoiler alert territory, we're going to find out later that Mr. Mason is Bertha Rochester's brother, that he has come to check on his sister, and that his sister has stabbed him a bunch, possibly because he was involved in getting her married to a guy who has locked her in an attic. Yeah. I mean, possibilities, right? Yeah. But Jane's like, I don't know, maybe Grace Poole did this. That's cool. No further questions. So we get then Rochester's gratitude to Jane that she has helped him once again, you know, like, you put out the fire on my bed, you helped me cover up this attempted murder. I really appreciate you, Jane. But Jane thinks that he's going to marry Blanche Ingram. Like, she's got that conviction. Mm -hmm. And he's done nothing to dispel it because he's a manipulative liar. Um... And then the story gets interrupted again. We're going to, like, drag this plot out a bit more. Jane is summoned back to Gateshead because her aunt is dying. So she returns to Gateshead, and she spends actually a couple of months at Gateshead because she's there while her aunt is dying, and then after her aunt dies, she stays a while to help sort out the Gateshead affairs as her uh, cousins move on to their respective stations. One of them gets married and the other one goes into a nunnery. We find out a couple of things in the meantime. So first of all, we find out that the boy cousin, John Reed, has committed suicide after becoming a ne'er-do-well who drank too much of the alcohol and asked for too much of his inheritance ahead of time and eventually ran out of money. So a reminder to the kids at home, drinking alcohol only results in death. Yep. And now um, pause for a sip of scotch. <laughs> the other thing she finds out is she finds out that she received a letter from her uncle... Uh, her uncle on her father's side, who had gone off to the West Indies to make his fortune, presumably by exploiting the local population, and had in fact succeeded, and is now a wealthy plantation owner. And if you're wondering if the phrase wealthy plantation owner is as bad as it should be, yes it is. Yeah. Uh, but he wants to make Jane his heir. 
and Jane finds out that her aunt, uh, and again, her, her aunt is her aunt on her mother's side. So mm-hmm. her aunt is her aunt Reed. The uncle who wrote is her uncle Air. And her aunt wrote back to her uncle and said that she was dead. Um, and so this is a truly ridiculous act of spite um, that comes out in her aunt's kind of deathbed confession. And what's really important to me about this scene is that there's this fascinating exchange of documents whereby her aunt, in this really ritualistic fashion, pulls out the letter that her uncle wrote and shows it to her. And so we, as readers, can see this letter at the same time that Jane sees it. Uh, So it's a moment where we're sort of in the same shoes as our protagonist. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be relevant... In the latter part of the novel, we'll get a a kind of mirror scene where someone pulls out a document and shows it to Jane. Um, And it's one of the few places where we get this kind of unequivocal objective truth in the story. Like, whatever else is going on and whatever questions we have, it turns out that for real, her uncle is alive and sent her a letter like we have seen it. And so Jane writes back to her uncle and sort of like, I'm not dead. Thanks for taking an interest. But she doesn't have a real high hope that this letter's going to make it to her uncle. Mm-hmm. And she just kind of goes back to work. So she goes back to Thornfield Hall and when she returns, Mr. Rochester's there to greet her. He's very friendly. And she's kind of on her guard because she kind of assumes that he's getting married to Blanche Ingram. And in fact, there are all of these, like, wedding preparations going on. Like, he's getting nicer things for the house. And so... It comes to the the big climactic scene for this section of the story where they're out in the courtyard together uh, having this conversation about their connection to one another. And, and she really feels like, you know, she's going to lose him. He has told her that he will find her another position for mm-hmm. when he's married. Um, So he's really digging pretty deep into this deception. You know, he he says that he's going to get her a position as a governess for Mrs. O'Gall and the Bitter Nut Lodge. Like, it's just a terrible place to be. Um, But finally, you know, they have this big discussion where she admits to him her feelings for him. That, that she admits that she feels connected to him and feels like she couldn't survive without him. And it's a famous passage where she says, I am not talking to you now through the medium of custom conventionalities, nor even of mortal flesh. It is my spirit that addresses your spirit. 
just as if both had passed through the grave and we stood at God's feet, equal as we are. Um, and finally, that gets him to admit that he's not actually marrying Blanche Ingram, that he wants to be with her, and that he wants her to be his wife. And so this is a sort of moment of joy and excitement, even though further reflection would suggest maybe you shouldn't be so joyful and excited about Mr. Rochester finally admitting he loves you after six months of lying to you. Yeah. Um, and then that chapter ends with the tree they were standing under... Uh, to protect themselves from the pouring rain, because even in the 19th century, all good romantic confessions should come out in the pouring rain. Sure. Uh, the tree gets struck by lightning and cut in two, right? In not so subtle of symbolism that maybe not everything is going to go quite right with this union. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I keep thinking about how it's like the lightning and the letters, and it's like these these are, seem like things out of uh, gothic tradition. And then I think about it, it's like, well, they didn't have telephones, they didn't have TVs, they <laughs> didn't have fax machines. So yeah, that's why there's letters, and and it's like, and then I'm like, oh yeah, lightning. Um, lightning was still scary as hell. I mean, that's. <laughs> I mean, symbolism aside, lightning was probably, you know, you don't live in a super sturdy house unless you, like, live in some sort of stone place, and not everyone has lightning rods attached, so <laughs> there goes your town. Anyway. No, absolutely. Like, it is it is not a subtle omen, and we get a sequence of, of further omens, um leading up to when they are supposed to get married, right? Mm -hmm. Jane has dreams, see, she sees visions, her wedding veil is rent in two. Um, and, and alongside all of this, there's also a, a pretty subtle dynamic. It is, it is difficult to pick up on when you're reading the novel for the first time or second, or any time before you've studied the novel a lot, that in the weeks leading up to their wedding, Rochester is totally trying to get it on with Jane. Mm -hmm. Rochester's like, I have found this sexy young thing, and I want to be with her. And Mrs. Fairfax has warned Jane. Uh, she has sort of been like, be on your guard men in the station of Mr. Rochester are not in the custom of marrying their paid subordinates. Um, and so Jane keeps Mr. Rochester at a bit of a distance, but of course all of this has to occur in 19th century fiction without any explicit mention of sex or sexuality. Mm -hmm. Right. And yet it is so important to the relationship between Mr. Rochester and Jane that one of the real differences between them is that Mr. Rochester has had a fair amount of sex with more than one person. Mm -hmm. And Jane does not know anything about that. Um, 
I mean, not that she doesn't know Mr. Rochester has had sex. She doesn't really know what sex is. Uh, and, and that dynamic is part of then the tension between them in the next couple of chapters leading up to the wedding that Jane is defending herself mm -hmm. um, which again connects it to this gothic tradition whereby these kind of passionate tyrannical figures are, are always sort of threatening the virtue of young women and so we, we finally get to what is supposed to be the wedding of Jane and Mr. Rochester after a month of courtship in which he keeps trying to buy her expensive things that she doesn't want. Mm -hmm. um, and we get to the bit where they are at the chapel getting ready to get married and then we have the introduction of possibly my favorite character in all of fiction. Hmm. And his name is Briggs. And he is a lawyer. Yeah. He is a solicitor of a specific street in London. And in the fashion of 19th century literature, that specific street in London is just a dash of a line, right? A <laughs> blank street in London. And we get no physical description of Mr. Briggs. We don't know what he looks like. Uh, he hasn't appeared in the first 300 pages of the novel. He's going to have one more appearance uh, in the latter part of the novel. But he is... He's an important figure in literature because he marks a separation in time. So I've talked a bit about what 18th century Gothic fiction is like with your passionate, tyrannical figures pursuing young women mm -hmm. or your cold, calculating, tyrannical figures trying to lock them in nunneries. And in the 18th century, no one had lawyers. Okay. Right? No no young woman in the 18th century was like, let me check with my counsel to see how this is going to affect my status. Uh, and Mr. Briggs shows up, and he's a lawyer, and he objects to the wedding by pointing out that Mr. Rochester is already married. Mm -hmm. And he's going to show up again later to sort of legally identify Jane... And that dimension of legal expertise mm -hmm. is really new to the 19th century. Hmm. And it really changes how stories unfold. Um, Dickens is really famous for having lawyers in his novels. And the idea that the law itself could be a sort of source of drama and tension... Hmm. It's mm -hmm. new here. And it's not what we think of when we think of gothic literature. Yeah. You know, I think we're we're a little more inclined to think of like vampires and ghosts and castles and then like lawyers. <laughs> but lawyers are a really important part of gothic fiction in the nineteenth century mm -hmm. because the law is one way in which 
our past transgressions continue to haunt us. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so that's what we get here. Mr. Rochester, we discover, when he was young, married a woman who had wealth, who was going to bring him a fortune, who seemed attractive and passionate and sexy and compelling. And then, according to Mr. Rochester, was, you know, crazy. Yeah. Um, And this is a moment where there's a lot of work done in academia about Bertha Rochester. Uh, The novel Wide Sargosa Sea by Jean Rus really retells her story Mm -hmm. in a crucial way. Um, But within the novel of Jane Eyre, we only have Mr. Rochester's take on her, right? The only take on her we have is, I was duped into marrying a crazy lady, so I locked her in my attic. Yeah. Totally rational behavior. And so, when the wedding is interrupted by Mr. Briggs, Mr. Rochester takes Jane finally up to the third floor of Thornfield Hall and introduces her to Bertha Rochester. Uh, We find out that Grace Poole has been in charge of attending to Bertha Rochester and that the violent incidents in the hall have been the result of times when Grace Pools had a little too much beer and kind of dropped the ball. Turns out it's hard to find good help when your definition of help is secretly keep my wife locked in the attic. Yeah. That's a, that's a tough one. It's hard to put out a job at for that. <laughs> uh, so... Jane is crushed by this. She's devastated. She retreats to her room. Rochester sort of hangs out outside her room. We get this just terrible moment when she kind of like steps out of her room and she has a back and forth with Rochester and Rochester is kind of like, it's cool. Let's go off to Europe. No one knows me there. They won't care that I'm already married to someone else. Um, Sort of trying to become a bigamist, which Mm -hmm. is also within the classic Gothic tradition, going back to the Castle of Otranto, Mm -hmm. um, where your passionate, tyrannical figure is oftentimes already married and then tells the young woman, like, it's cool. I'll send my existing wife somewhere else. Um... And Jane, standing by her virtue, says, like, I would know, God would know, right, we can't do this. And Rochester, like, physically grabs her in a, in a threatening manner, right? Like, he, he is going to crush her. And he even says, like, I could crush you, or I could do whatever I want with your outside parts in a way that is deeply disturbing. Yeah. Um, and he and he says, but I couldn't get at the thing inside of you, and that's the thing I love, right? And so we have this moment where where he's kind of threatening her, and he's kind of um, suggesting that he's a danger to himself. 
And so Jane goes back into her room and, and she prays. She's trying to decide what to do. And intriguingly, she says that it's the, the Mother Moon that tells her to flee. So for all that, the novel does not really complicate the idea of a patriarchal god kind of figure. And Jane will continue to be a pretty uh, devout Christian woman we do have some sense that there needs to be like some kind of feminine higher power that in this case is the moon mm-hmm. and and so jane flees she runs away she flees thornfield hall and runs across the moors she catches a a coach to the next town over um and that's really where we leave off here right, right. before we to the final section of the novel yeah and and so just you know some highlights to this bit that we have these mysteries going on at thornfield hall and we're going to discover that they are all tied to mr rochester's past transgressions and that's in keeping with the gothic tradition where we oftentimes have this kind of patriarchal tyrannical figure Mm -hmm. who has some sins in their past and oftentimes generational sins so mr rochester really blames his father like my father kind of did this to me Mm -hmm. Um, and that's in keeping with going back to the very first gothic novel the castle of toronto where it was the grandfather who actually committed the sin actually committed the murder and stole the land of toronto Mm -hmm. And then it comes down to the grandson who's going to suffer the consequences. Yeah. Um, So that inheritance of past sins is really key there. But also what's sort of new in the 19th century is, one, we have this discussion, this active contemplation of redemption and repentance. And Jane and Rochester have a debate about repentance where Rochester thinks maybe just being with Jane will refresh him. But Jane has insisted that it requires an actual reformation of character. Like, you actually have to be a different person. Okay. And so that may come out in the latter third of the novel now that we know what Mr. Rochester has done. Dun-dun-dun! And then finally, that dimension I talked about before, where our gothic mystery doesn't need walking statues to be revealed. Mm -hmm. Instead, a lawyer shows up and reveals our gothic mystery. (laughs) Cool. So we'll uh, we'll return to those things in the next part. Yeah, no, definitely have you on again uh, very soon to talk about the final chunk. Oh, excuse me. Final chunk of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Sounds good. All right. Uh, do you have anything to you want to recommend to people? Anything you're watching right now? Or yeah, that's a good question. Um, I've been reading the novel Finder by Suzanne Palmer. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with Jane Eyre, but if you like Anne Leckie's Ancillary Justice series, uh, Finder by Suzanne Palmer might scratch a similar itch. Nice. Nice. Very cool. And 
yeah, I don't have any other questions for you. And I guess uh, thank you so much, Drew, for talking about uh, what we're calling Section 2, not the traditional Section 2 of Jane Eyre, but what Andrew Grace has decided is this is Section 2, uh, which is chapters 12 through 26, I believe. Right about there, yeah. 12 to 27, something like that. And that's what we have. And yeah, next week, uh, this week, we'll say, uh, you'll get to listen to that final chunk. And this way, I don't have any real spoilers for anyone because we haven't covered the last chunk yet. So join us again. And Drew, again, thank you so much. And yeah, hopefully, You're very welcome. Yeah, hopefully we'll get you on the show in October. Sounds good. All right. Thank you much, Drew. All right, take care.